The words that I'd like to direct your attention to once again are found in the Colossians. We'll be looking at Paul's prayer for the Colossians, which begins in chapter 1, verse 9. So Colossians 1, verse 9. Paul writes, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, again, we ask for grace that we might understand your word, that we might not just understand what it says, but its implications for our life. Lord, we've gathered here not just to be inspired or encouraged, but Lord, to be changed. We We want faith with deep convictions so that when the storms of life hit, we are not blown over, but we have deep roots. We pray that you would even use this message particularly your word and its implications. Lord, to, to, to be deeply rooted in our heart, that we would stand fast and honor you in all that we do. That's our desire. We ask that you would help your word be fruitful even now. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if a preacher wanted to preach a convicting message, Almost every preacher knows they just have to preach on prayer because prayer is just one of those things that we all struggle with. None of us pray as much or as well as we should, and, and that includes me. And that's, it's strange because prayer is actually one of the easiest things a person can do. In fact, you don't even need to keep your eyes open. Uh, you don't even have to talk. You could just be there. Prayers don't have to be long. They can be short. We can pray at any time. And yet, if you were to ask Christians do you, if they thought they were doing well in their prayer life, almost all would say, no, that's a, that's a significant challenge. Even though we have the example of Christ, God himself, praying all night at times, if he would pray and devote so much time to prayer, You would think with that example, that would be a greater motivation. And yet we struggle to pray. And I think there are many reasons why we struggle to pray. But I think one of the reasons is simply we we don't always know what we should be praying for. And we start to pray and after a while we just pray the same thing. So we're not certain even how to pray for our brothers and sisters. And, And so the prayer begins to feel insincere. And and almost like we're wasting our time and even God's time. And so the Lord, knowing that, knowing that tendency even in us, has given us models for prayer. We have, of course, the disciples' prayer, sometimes called the Lord's Prayer. 
Uh, you have Nehemiah's prayer, the book of Nehemiah, Daniel's prayer. Almost all the Psalms are prayers of sorts. And then, we, of course, we have all the prayers in Paul's letters that he wrote of. And we're going to look today at, at Paul's prayer for the Colossians. And we'll look at this over the next few weeks. And, I, and, and it presents to us a model of how to pray. And especially a way to pray for any other Christian in the faith. And so I would encourage you even to be memorizing this text so that when you come to pray for brothers and sisters or family members, you would know, hey, this is this is what God's will is for them. And you can have confidence that your prayer would be effective and even fruitful. In fact, I would encourage you as we go through the book of Colossians, because it's a fairly short book and we'll go through it fairly shortly, even to be memorizing the whole of Colossians. That's what I have challenged my family to um, But I would encourage you as well. I think you would find great benefit in memorizing this book. But let's look at uh, this prayer of Paul's in in, uh, 9 through 12. We'll only get to verse 12 this morning. And the passage today really is broken down into two major requests. That the Colossians would grow in their understanding of God's word. And in light of knowing what God's word says that they would therefore be able to live in a manner that pleases him. So simply put, he's praying that they would have a full understanding of God's will and that they would walk worthy. And then he breaks down that worthy walk. What does a worthy walk look like? Bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being empowered with all power, and then also finally giving thanks to the Father joyfully. So let's look first of all at that that primary request that they would be filled with with the knowledge of God's will in verse nine. He says, and so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. First of all, I want you to notice that Paul's prayer for the Colossians is based upon what he has heard about their situation. He's very encouraged by their faith, their hope, their love. There's evidence of genuine uh, belief in the gospel, genuine transformation. These are these are real believers. And yet there's also some false teachers that are uh, plaguing them. And so in light of that, this is his prescription for the problem. Right. When you when anybody goes to a physician to get a, a checkup, maybe they have an ailment. You know, quite often if there's a drug that could be offered, the, the physician will write a prescription. And the two main ingredients in Paul's prescription for the Colossians is that they need God's help. That's why he prays, right? When in prayer, we're asking for God to do something. So God's power. And then secondly, it's really God's word. He asked that the Colossians be filled with an understanding of God's will, which of course is what's revealed in scripture. So the prescription notice includes something that God must do. That's why he's praying to God. But it also includes something that the Colossians should do. God do this so the Colossians would do this. Now, the word filled, as he asked to be, they would be filled with the knowledge of the word, doesn't mean a spatial filling, like a filling of a pitcher or something with water, but to be characterized by something is what it means. That a person is characterized by this thing about their life. So the Colossians, Paul prays, would be characterized by a full understanding of God's will. Now, of course, 
um, the scripture, when it mentions God's will, can be referring to many different things, primarily two different things. It could refer to God's sovereign plan, what theologians call his will of decree or his decorative will. So um, that's God's plan from the beginning of time through the end of time. All of that he has designed, right? The will of God could also refer to his uh, commands that he's given, right? We know what God wants us to do based upon the commands that he's offered. This is what theologians call his prescriptive will based upon um, precepts or commandments. And the context here suggests that Paul is referring to this second use, that the Colossians would understand how God wants them to live that the Colossians would know what choices God wants them to make with their lives. If the Colossians were filled with the knowledge of God's will, they would no longer be unduly affected by these false teachings and false understandings of the Bible. They would easily be able to point out it's error because they would know what God's word says. Moreover, as you know, the goal of every Christian is that we would be Christ-like, that we'd be true worshipers, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in order to achieve this ultimate goal, Christians need to understand what God has revealed to man in his word. Paul points this out in Ephesians chapter 4. If you go over just a couple books earlier in the Bible, Paul says this in chapter 4, verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's our goal, that all of us would be Christ-like. And in doing so, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Right? As we grow in the unity of faith, we're no longer going to be tossed about by false ideas. Now, I should point out here, a false understanding that often comes up with an evangelicalism. And that, that is that a lot of evangelicals believe that all that a person really needs to understand is the evangel itself, the gospel. That really all a person needs to know is how they can be saved. And then once they're saved, then from that point on, they just need to be reminded of the gospel again and again and again and again in their life. Even if hard things come into their life, All they need to know is the gospel, that a person is safe in Christ. Now, to some extent, that's true. We never want to forget the gospel, but it's also somewhat naive. In fact, I'd say highly naive. This would be like assuming that the goal of life is just simply to be born, right? That once a person is born into this world, they don't need to know anything else except who their parents are. And their parents will never leave them or forsake them. And that they will never stop being their parents. But we all recognize that the goal of life is not just simply to be born, but it's to grow up, to mature, to be adults, and to, to be faithful to the Lord in that, we would say. So birth is just the beginning. And then the story about how we were born is just the story about that. But it's far greater. The, the gospel is just the ABCs of Christianity. Even though it's the most important news a person could ever understand, it's still just the basics. There is far more to know about God. That's why he's given us not just four spiritual laws. He's given us the entirety of his word 
to study. Now, every Christian should have a solid understanding of the gospel, and they should be able to, to share the gospel with any unbeliever who asks them for a reason for the hope that they have within them. But that's not sufficient for all of life. It's sufficient for salvation, but not to have a full understanding of God's will, as Paul prays here. Right? God has given us the whole of the Bible because all of it is important. Right? 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, or 16 and 17. Every scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. That the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. The whole point is, we need all of the Scripture. All of it's useful for that ends. Not just those that speak to salvation. So there, there is no such thing as one unnecessary verse in, all, in the Bible. Every single verse has weight to it, has importance. Or else God wouldn't put it there. Whether we realize that verse's value, it still has value. And the way, of course, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will is obvious. A person needs to devote themselves to understanding what God's word says. And not just one or two passages, but the whole of the Bible. Now, at a basic level, it means that they should be reading the Bible. If they have access to the Bible, they should be reading it and reading it regularly. They should be putting more time into the Bible than entertainment. Because this is more important to us than our necessary food. And they should regularly receive teaching on what the Bible says, which, of course, you're doing. That's why you're here today. But even still, going to church and hearing sermons, reading the Bible every day, that's still just minimal. That's just the bare minimum of what a Christian should receive. And why is that? Well, it's because there's so much to learn. We could never exhaust the scriptures. I mean, there are theologians that study it their whole life. You could, you could memorize the whole of the Bible, even, and still not be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Because it doesn't take just memorizing or even knowing what the Bible says. You also need to know how to apply it. You need to understand the implications for the Bible in your life. There's so much more to... To know, we need to be constantly reading and rereading. Even a yearly Bible plan, if you were to read through it, it would, it would seem insufficient to grasp all that the Bible has to say. And that's why we could read the Bible through, a, um, read through the Bible in a whole year, and yet we need to do it year after year after year because we forget. And we need to be reminded of these things. We should also be memorizing God's Word for the same reason. Memorizing Scripture allows a person to, to meditate upon a verse of Scripture, a passage of Scripture throughout the week. They don't necessarily have to have their Bible with them. And it's also really useful for providing counsel to people. I mean, you're, you're frequently running into people who want counsel, encouragement. Well, if you have Scripture memorized, you could remind them of what the Scripture says. Um, you could even encourage them to memorize portions of Scripture. It's one of the most effective applications of biblical counseling is to give a person a passage of scripture to memorize so that when they're faced with that besetting sin or temptation, they can fight that temptation with the word of God and do so because it's been implanted in their heart. 
So we should be memorizing Scripture. And because of the depth of Scripture and its complexity, we should also have a regular pattern of studying it, not just reading it, but understanding the depths of what's there. And when we study the Bible, honestly, there is no better means of communion with God. For those who have studied Scripture in depth, the, the, the communion you have with God during those moments far surpasses anything you'd get during a, a normal worship service, I would say. Because you almost always get far more out of your personal study of the Word than you would get in a sermon. Because much of what a sermon provides, you're discovering for yourself. It would be like the difference between hearing a lecture on a famous person and then sitting down and actually having a conversation with that same person and discuss on a personal level what they think about something. I mean, I could tell you all sorts of glorious things about my wife, Julie. And yet, why, why, why would you be... Why would that be sufficient for you? If you really want to get to know her, just get to know her. Don't just take my word for it. Spend time with her. Ask her questions. It's the same thing with God's word. I can share with you what I've learned, but, and that will be good and beneficial. But how much greater for you to discover these things for yourself? And that's, of course, why we make such a big deal of wanting you guys to be equipped in biblical interpretation. Why we encourage you to take the classes that Chris provides because of the richness it provides in our intimacy with God. And being filled with the knowledge of God's will also requires reading books about what Scripture is revealed. And I say that not because the Scripture is insufficient, but because good Christian books, they synthesize on certain subjects what the Bible reveals. They're taking biblical truths and then simplifying it or clarifying it um, in, in another uh, medium, writing another book on that subject. And so they're taking, it's biblical truth, but truth in light of one particular subject. Right? That's why we have systematic theologies and biblical theologies and just books on Christian living. So you guys know this already because you've read, you read these books and you, you read them because they are, um, they illuminate what the scripture says, not because they're new They're just taking what the Scripture says and applying it in a certain context. And they're beneficial that way. Right? And there's so much more to learn. Right? People have been writing Christian books for 2,000 years. And we have not exhausted everything there is to know about God and the implications of God's Word on our life. Which just shows how much more we should be reading and studying and meditating on the Word of God. If we want to be filled with the knowledge of God's will... It's going to take more effort than just reading the Bible every day and going to church once a week. That's great, but that's just basic. It's minimal. And I think even so, knowing God's will requires more than just simply knowing what the Bible says. Again, a a person could memorize all of God's word. They could cite multiple texts of scriptures. They could defend Tons of theological doctrines and explain those doctrines. But again, unless they understand the practical implications of those biblical truths, what good is it? 
I mean, unless they're applying the Bible and what they know the Bible to say to their lives, unless, it's, unless the Bible is actually transforming the way they live so they live in a manner pleasing to the Lord, what good is all that knowledge? So not only do we have to learn all of what the Bible has to say to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, but we also have to understand what it, how it applies to us. The study is just the beginning. And Paul notes here in his prayer that knowledge of the Bible, being filled with the knowledge of God's will, is not the end goal, right? But he says, to walk according to God's will in a manner that's pleasing to him. All right, you see that. That's his second request. Notice he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Right? The knowledge of God's will should be in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The phrase modifies the previous. See, Paul is asking God that the Colossians would not only increase in their knowledge of the Scriptures, but, but that through that they would know what they need to know to live godly lives. Right? The point of studying the Bible is to gain wisdom and understanding. And we see here, too, that that is the product of studying the Scriptures. If you study the Bible, it will produce spiritual wisdom and understanding. It produces that. And there's lots of people who say, man, I just need wisdom. That's the most common prayer request I think I hear from Christians. I need wisdom for this. I need wisdom for that. Where do you get wisdom? It, the, the, the Scriptures themselves produce wisdom. That's what they do. It's how it works. Just as if you lift weights every day, you're going to grow stronger. You may not be as strong as Justin, but you'll be strong. You could run every day. And if you run a day, you're going to gain some endurance. He is having the endurance of Isaiah. But you'll have some endurance. You'll be healthier. And if you study the Bible regularly, you will gain spiritual wisdom and understanding. And, and the impact of spiritual wisdom and understanding, as it says in Psalm 119, is you will be wiser than the ancients. All the, the movers and shakers of the world, you will have more than they have learned with all of their degrees and all of their experience. Because the, your wisdom comes from the Creator. And of course, the purpose of gaining such wisdom is that we would be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And that's what Paul prays for next. All right, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Now, some of you know that this, this, is, this is a request that comes up on multiple times in the Bible. Paul prays that we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, Philippians 1.27, also Ephesians 4, 1-3. And the point of the exhortation is that in light of the great truths of the Bible, that should have a, a corresponding effect upon our life if we believe them. Right? The lives of Christians should directly correspond to Christ's life. Like there should be some connection. Right? That's what a Christian is, right? A little Christ. That's what the word means. It's, this should be obvious in our actions and choices that we're chips off the old block, so to speak. People say, You're a lot like your Father in heaven. I see a difference. You don't conform 
to the passions of your lust like the rest of the world, but according to the word of God. And the more you know God and the more you live according to your his will. Um, the deeper that relationship will grow. And that is the point of eternal life, right? John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you and your only son whom you've sent, right? That's, that's what eternal life is for. It's not just getting forgiveness. It's not just not having to die and go to hell. It's about knowing God. This is the whole purpose of your existence is to know your creator. And so that's why Paul prays that the Colossians would know God's will so they would walk in a manner worthy of him. So eternal life, again, is living out God's will in your life because you know him. And a worthy walk not only shows correspondence of our life to Christ, but it also shows the value of Christ to us. And what is the value of Christ? We know this because of Revelation 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. Right? There is no being of greater worth and greater value. How do you show that then in your life? You show what you value by the choices you make. Your choices show what you value. This is not rocket science. Right? Um, Jesus himself says in Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So how do we show what it's like to be worthy of Christ? How do we show his worth? Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The point is, the life that's worthy of me, that's worthy of the gospel of Christ, that shows the gospel's worth, is the one that makes choices not based upon what we want, but what Christ wants, that dies to self. Right? Matthew thirteen forty five, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Right? The pearl showed that, that he... he it was so valuable. He was willing to get rid of everything else just to have that. And it showed the value, the worth of the pearl. And Jesus' point is, if you understand my worth, my value, you understand the worth of the gospel, everything in your life is going to be oriented around that. And if it's not, it shows that you don't value it rightly. All right, the... The way Christians live demonstrates Christ's worth to them. When a secret service agent takes a bullet for the president, it demonstrates the worth of the president. I mean, that's, that's, and, and, and none of us feel bad about that. That's right. That's noble because of the office. When a person sacrifices a promotion at work because in order to get that promotion, they would have to sacrifice time with their family, they show that time with their family means far more to them. It has more worth than a promotion. And when you make choices based upon what God has said in the scripture over against what the culture values or even what you yourself want, it shows how much worth Christ is to you. 
And notice that Paul modifies that phrase to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord with the phrase fully pleasing to him. Right? This is, this is what pleases God. When we walk in a manner worthy, it brings pleasure to God. And this is a remarkable phrase to please him because the one commendation that we're given about Christ from God the Father was at his baptism. And you know what he said. This is my beloved son who is well pleasing to me. Right? It shows the value of Christ. Like, that to be well pleasing to God is the greatest honor you could receive. It corresponds to being absolutely faithful. Right? You're my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Mark 1 11. And the longing to please God is what drove Paul in all that he did. He said in 2 Corinthians 5 9, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Like, no matter where Paul was at, no matter what Paul was doing, the driving decision-making element in his life was, how can I please God? What's going to please God? Well, how would he know how to please God? Well, he was full of an understanding of God's Word. He understood God's will for him. Right? To walk in a worthy manner, to live a life pleasing to God, starts with knowing God's will. And then Paul also fleshes this out in the rest of his prayer. A life pleasing to God starts with bearing fruit in every good work. So notice that God does not simply want us to obey him. I think a lot of Christians just think, okay, tell me what I need to do and then I'll do it. And that's sufficient. But God doesn't want us just to obey, although he wants us to obey. But he wants us to obey so that our obedience would result in something. Namely, fruit. Right? Just consider that you don't want your kids' teachers to simply teach. You want your kids to learn. Right? The goal is not just to teach, but to produce fruit from that teaching. That those students would be lifelong learners. What good's the teaching if the kids don't learn? All right, if you're contracting workers to build a house, you don't want them just to work. You want them to actually build something. Right? I mean, you could work and accomplish absolutely nothing, as we all know. Me in particular. You want it to produce something, right? God, too, wants in our obedience for us to produce something. If you come to church on Sunday, you don't just expect to hear a sermon. You expect to hear a good sermon, a decent one. And you're certainly not content to know that I've just studied the passage. Right? You want to learn something. You want to see that there's product from that study. And even so, God wants us not just to follow his instructions, but to produce spiritual fruit in our obedience. So obedience is not the end, but it's a means to an end. And that's fruitfulness. Just look at some of these scriptures. Ephesians 4, the aim of teaching and preaching is to build up the church. Right? There's a lot of churches where there's lots of teaching and preaching, but there's no building up taking place. There's no real learning taking place. Either it's just milk or it's just error. Or it's really good. 
And the aim of ministering our spiritual gifts is that the church would be built up, that people would grow, that people would be ministered to, they would be loved. The ultimate aim of serving is to glorify God. 1 Peter 4.11 The aim of submitting to authorities is to silence the ignorance of fools. 1 Peter 2 And we know that the aim of evangelism is not just to share the gospel, but to win souls. God sends us out to preach the gospel, not just so that we would know we preach the gospel, but that people actually would be saved. We want to produce fruit. Right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.22, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. He wants to save people. He doesn't want to just preach. He wants that preaching to actually produce fruit. And he wants the same thing for the Colossians. So he's praying for them, not only that they would understand God's will for their life and be pleasing to him, but in pleasing him, they actually would be bearing fruit because that's what pleases God. Right? We abide in Christ so that we would bear much fruit. Right? We're just fools. If we think that just performing our duties is all that matters. Right? We, all of us, we perform our duties with an end in mind. And especially our, our Christian duties, responsibilities. Right? And it's true that we're not going to see most of the fruit that God produces in our lives. We'll maybe see some, but most of it we're not going to see. Nevertheless, a farmer does not just sow seed for fun, just to do the job. He sows seed because even though he might not see something for months, he still wants to produce a crop. And he goes out and he checks on his crop and he he fertilizes and he weeds and he uh, waters and sprays. He does everything he can to make sure a a crop would develop. He doesn't just sow seed. The goal is always to produce fruit. And we need to be reminded of that for, for, because it's so easy just to fall into patterns of discipline, right? You didn't, hopefully you didn't come to church just to come to church, but that it would have an impact and that you would have an impact upon those you minister to. So the point is not that we have to see the fruit, but fruit is still what we're aiming at. And even if we never get to enjoy the harvest, of the the seed that we're sowing, we still labor to bring about the best harvest that we possibly can. And we should study diligently. We should work diligently, put forth effort because we want to produce something. This is what Paul says at the end of Colossians 1. We'll get here in a few weeks. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So he teaches with wisdom so that everybody he teaches might grow in Christ's likeness. And then he says this in verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Right? He labors to produce fruit. He doesn't just say, well, I I taught my passage and I'm going to go home and You know, if God wants to bless it, he'll bless it. No, he labors hard. Everything matters because he wants to produce something. And God wants us to produce something in our ministry, even though ultimately it's God's power working in us. We labor 
struggling, knowing that God in that struggle, in that labor will produce fruit. God uses means. And one of the means he uses is labor and discipline. God does not look upon laziness favorably. And we need to remember that. Secondly, a life pleasing to God is one in which we increase in knowledge, right? Bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, we've already said a lot regarding this, but I just want to point out the, the fact that there's an expectation in God's mind against stagnation. God is not for stagnation, right? He expects us to continue to grow. There should not be a plateau in the Christian life. Now, there's ups and downs. I'm not saying there's not ups and downs, but there should always be progressive movement that even when we're humbled, we're growing in faith and we're getting back up and we're laboring on, right? We should be always increasing in our understanding of God and his word, pursuing his will. And the more we know about him and his will, then we did a year ago, the more fully equipped we're going to be to evangelize and to teach others and to serve others. Right? So we have to be increasing. Right? And God expects every member to be increasing in knowledge. He says this in Ephesians 4. So it's not just the elders of a church that should be increasing in their knowledge, but every believer. Ephesians 4.13 Until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. God expects all of us to be increasing in knowledge, not just the leaders. And so we have to be asking, how, how is that happening? And are you more aware of what God's Word says and its implications on your life? Are you more obedient today than you were a year ago? The Lord is pleased as we increase in knowledge. Thirdly, a life pleasing to God is one empowered by His power. Notice the emphasis on the word power. In fact, in in the Greek, it's repeated three times. Being empowered with power according to His glorious power is the idea. Right. So notice again that the life pleasing to him is one in which God empowers the person. So it's not the person's power in themselves. Paul labors and strives, but according to God's power in him. And this just goes to show God's not impressed by our strength. Right. God knows that in order for us to produce fruit, even for us to labor hard. It's got to be his power in us if it's going to be fruitful. Right? The one who thinks that he's spiritually strong in and of himself is a fool. Right? This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Like In the natural man, in our flesh, we cannot produce spiritual fruit. We just can't. That doesn't mean we don't labor hard. But we know that we can't produce fruit. Just like a farmer knows that that seed's not going to grow unless it has water. Unless rains come, unless God sends rain, those plants are going to die. That seed is not going to sprout. Likewise, we know we're going to do everything we can to labor. But in order for produce to come, it's got to be by God's power. Right? 
and the means God uses to infuse us with power is the knowledge of God. That's the point here. Now, one could also include God uses the means of prayer, fellowship, even suffering. But in the context here, Paul is drawing out the impact of the word of God in particular. God uses other means, but here he's focusing on the means that the word of God, the means of the word of God in producing this power and this fruit. All right, and the result of the strengthening, the empowerment, is that Christians will have all endurance and patience. Now notice those two words, because it's easy just to pass over those quickly. And we're empowered with His power so that we would have endurance and patience. Now, the, the two words are really synonyms, and they convey the idea of not giving up. And and really, that has two implications, I think, for Christians. One, that we wouldn't forsake Christ, that we wouldn't abandon Christ, abandon the faith. But not just that, it's so that we wouldn't give in to temptation and sin. Again, one of the common requests that faithful believers have in prayer requests is that I would be able to resist temptation. How do you gain strength to resist temptation? Well, it's through God's power which he infuses through his word. Right? Just like in in the soils of that parable that Christ gave, the three bad soils. Right? Those those soils are evidence that that, that, um, three of the four never embraced Christ. Right? They were choked out or Satan took away God's word. Only one bore fruit. And the point here is that those who are empowered by God's power are able to endure. They don't get choked out. They don't fall in rocky, rocky soil. They produce fruit a hundredfold, right? When those who rely just simply on human strength, on their own discipline, they're going to wash out. And that's the point. You're empowered with God's power for endurance and patience, not through just gritty self-control, right? And if you find yourself falling again and again into certain temptations, you need to recognize maybe it's because you're just trying to fight it and through your own human strength. You can't do it. You can't. You need God's power. And how do you gain God's power? It's through the knowledge of his word. God uses means, right? Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find, right? All of the disciples claimed they would never abandon Christ. And they believed it. But it didn't take much for them to lose heart. All of them did. Why? Because they were confident in their own strength. They were confident in their own hearts. Christ, I love you so much, I could never do that to you. Until, of course, temptation comes. Let's let's not kid ourselves. We're not strong. We need His strength. Only a person who recognizes their personal weakness will rely upon God as the means. And 
the word he has given to us to strengthen us. So recognize that the lazy Christian and the proud Christian are really both, they come from the same stock. They both fail to see the need to cling to God's word. And like the man in Jesus' peril, when the, when the storms come, that house fell and great was its fall. Why? Because it wasn't founded upon the rock of Christ in his word, his sayings. It was founded upon their own strength. Right, and this, this is one of the reasons we led with Psalm 1. Right, we want to be like trees planted by streams of water that yield their fruit in season. Right, in all the way we prosper. Why does that come from? From the knowledge of God's word. Psalm 119 we read. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you've given me life. The psalmist point in Psalm 119 is... I would have despaired if it was not for your word. Your word sustained me. I don't have the mental capacity, the self-control, the discipline to not fall away, to not give in. And I'm certain that the, the, the writer of that psalm was a godly man. Many people think it was Daniel. But he knew just being, having a reputation for godliness wasn't enough. He needed God's word. So how can a marathon runner ensure that they will not drop out? They've got to train. Right? They don't just get up one morning, unless they're Isaiah, and go run a marathon. They train. Right? How can a Christian make sure he won't quit? He needs to take full advantage of the means of grace that God has provided. If you are not taking full advantage of the means of grace that God has provided for you, you have every reason to assume you will. And I can't say that with greater sobriety. And it's not to, not to punch you in the face. It's just that's what God's Word says. Don't be presumptuous. Don't be foolish. Right? Jesus said, the wise man built his house upon the rock. Referring to his words, his truths. Those who ignore that and just have confidence in their heart or their self-control, great will be their fall. Right? We need to take full advantage of what God has provided if we're going to endure. The fourth characteristic of a life that's pleasing to God is one of thanksgiving. Now, because Paul unpacks this extensively in the verses that follow, we're going to save our study of that characteristic until next week. So in summary, up till this point, Paul's prayer for the Colossians primarily centers around their growing an understanding of God's word. Right? And, and then in light of that understanding, the fruitful impact that will have, not just in their life, but in the lives of those around them. Right? And so because of that, this gives us a good model for how we should pray for ourselves and how we should pray for one another. So when you, when you come tonight to pray, you can be praying for your children, God, Give them a full understanding of your word, that they would walk in a manner pleasing to you, that they would bear fruit and, and increase in their, in their knowledge of you, and that they would give thanks to you at all times, and that they would endure and not give up. And we could be praying this, of course, for one another. Let's pray now.
Lord, we thank you that you have given us models for how we can pray because we admit that, that though we are familiar with so much of your word, we are often struck dumb when it comes to knowing how to pray for one another. And so, Lord, in light of what you've revealed through Paul to the Colossians, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that you would increase them in their understanding of your will, that they would be filled with an understanding of your will and that they would take advantage of all the means of that, that they would become devoted not just to reading the Bible day after day, but to studying it and to memorizing it and to meditating upon it, that they would find the joy of communion with you in in-depth study. Lord, I pray that you would also not just allow their heads to be filled with knowledge, but that that knowledge would have an immediate impact upon their heart, that their affections would be stirred and that their affection would be so stirred and their convictions so grounded that it would have an immediate impact in the decisions they make. Lord, so that those around them would realize they make choices not based upon selfishness and pride, but based upon a desire to please you in all that they do. And that they would live lives that show that they truly are Christians. Lord, that they in that would also bear fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That God, our church would be known as a church full of the Spirit, not in how Pentecostals mean that term, but how, how Paul means it in Galatians. That we would be Christ-like. And it would be evident in our faces, in our countenances, in our counsel. And Lord, when my brothers and sisters face temptation, that the word of God would dwell richly within them so that they would be able to fight that temptation in its its initial attack. That they would be putting sin to death through the strength of your word. And that you are that temptation and not give in. And we pray also, God, that you would give them a life of thankfulness, joyful thankfulness. Lord, that they would just be constantly aware of how much you're blessing them and caring for them and providing for them and protecting for them. Lord, that they would look at everything in life, even the difficulties, and see your hand and be compelled to give thanks. And we ask all these things, God, because that's what you're worthy of from us. And we don't want to live a life of emptiness a life of selfish pursuits. And so we pray that you would transform us even still through your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.